Hi everyone, I trust that you are well and that you've had a good week. We continue our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. For the past several weeks, we've focused on two chapters in which we have recorded for us seven letters that the Lord Jesus dictates to the Apostle John and asks him to send to seven individual churches in the province of Asia. Today, we come to what the Lord Jesus has to say to the church in Philadelphia and to us, and I've asked Jenny Leach if she will read our reading today. Good morning, all. The reading is from Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I'm sure you've had the experience of listening to someone on the telephone and trying to work out from their side of the conversation who it is that they are talking to. So Michelle answers her phone and says, Hi, yes, how are you? Is this work-related or a friend calling? How are the boys doing? Okay, so not work-related. Which one of her friends has boys? Yes, I'm sure we'll be able to make it on Saturday. Oh boy, this is becoming more personal in that it now involves me. Reading Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia is a little bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation because there are a number of details that we don't have which makes understanding this letter a little difficult. So let me begin by trying to give some of the background that we do know which I think will help make this letter a little clearer for us. If you're taking notes then, the first heading is the church in the city. The city of Philadelphia was not situated in Pennsylvania in the United States, but rather towards the west of the country that we know of as Turkey. While we know Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love, Disappointingly, this doesn't refer to Christian brotherly love, 
but rather the love that Attalus had for his brother King Eumenes, who established the city in the 2nd century BC. According to the archaeologist Sir William Ramsey, the intention of Eumenes had been to make Philadelphia a centre of the Greek civilization and a means of spreading the Greek language and manners in the eastern parts of Asia. A few weeks ago, our family watched the romantic comedy My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which is the story of how Tula, a Greek lady in a strongly Greek family, falls in love and marries a man who is not Greek. Tula's father, Mr. Portokalos, is extremely patriotic. Whenever he meets anyone, he says to them, give me any word and I will tell you how that word came from the Greek language. At one point, he says to Tula, there are two kinds of people, Greeks and everyone else who wish they was Greek. Mr. Portokalos and King Eumenes would have got on very well. The city lay along all the major trade routes of Asia, and it also lay along one of the major fault lines so that there were often earth tremors. One of the historians of the day called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. In fact, there had been a major earthquake in AD 17, which had almost completely demolished the city of Philadelphia. And as a result, whenever there was any sort of seismic activity, people would leave their houses and head out into the open countryside. We don't know anything about how the church in Philadelphia was established, although it seems that whoever preached the gospel at Philadelphia probably followed the apostolic pattern of first preaching to the Jewish people in the synagogue, proclaiming that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, before turning to the God-fearing Gentiles and then the rest of the population. It seems that, like the other churches that we've looked at, the church in Philadelphia had experienced a time of persecution. In verse 10, Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. And it seems most likely that this opposition and persecution had come from the Jewish citizens of the city. In verse 9, we read about the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. The background to this curious phrase you'll remember is John chapter 8, where Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that by lying about him and wanting to kill him, they have ceased to be children of Abraham and have become children of the devil, who is a murderer and a liar. And in a similar way now, by rejecting Jesus as Messiah, lying about him and his followers, the Jewish folk in Philadelphia had ceased to be a community of true Jews and had taken on the character of Satan. It seems that the Jewish people in the city who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah and have become Christians have been excommunicated from the synagogue. The door to the synagogue has been slammed in their faces. They are excluded. And it's so significant then how Jesus begins this letter to his church. Verses 7 and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. 
This brings us to our second heading today, an open door. Remember that the ideas and the images in the book of Revelation come to us from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 22, we read about a man called Eliakim who lived during the reign of King Hezekiah. And God says of this man, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. As a steward, Eliakim held a position of such high trust that the king had given him the keys to the palace. No one gained access to the royal palace other than through Eliakim. But now, in Jesus, there is someone even greater than Eliakim, who has the exclusive right to control access to the kingdom of God. The door to the synagogue may be barred to these believers, but Jesus holds the key to the kingdom of God. And as the one who holds the keys, Jesus says to his church in verse 8, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What is this open door? Most Bible commentators see this as pointing to two things. Firstly, the open door is the door of salvation. In Luke chapter 13, we read how on one occasion someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus replied, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And remember how in John chapter 10, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's astonishing that in pointing people to God, Jesus pointed to himself because he is God. As we read in the opening lines of this letter, these are the words of him who is holy and true. So Jesus places before his church and before us the open door of salvation. Let me read to you what Pastor John Stott had to say in this regard. Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door. The tense is perfect, for he opened it once for all, long ago, and it still stands open today. How is this so? It is because at the threshold of the narrow door there stands a cross. On it our Saviour died for us. He had no sins of his own. He bore our sins in his own body. He did not deserve to die. He took our deserts. He accepted in his own innocent person the judgment which our sins had righteously deserved. That is why the gate is open. Any sinner may now enter the inner sanctuary of God's presence and do so with confidence by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, Hebrews 10, 19. We may have wandered for many weary years in the bypaths of aimlessness, but now we may set our foot on the highway which leads to glory. Christ is the living one, who died and rose and has the keys of death. He says, I've 
placed before you an open door that no one can shut. But one day it will be shut. Christ himself will shut it. For the key which unlocked it will lock it again. And when he shuts it, no one can open it. Both admission and exclusion are in his power alone. Let me take this opportunity to ask you then, are you wandering the byways of aimlessness? Or have you entered into a relationship with God through the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for you? The open door of salvation. Secondly, the open door is the door of opportunity, and opportunity particularly as it relates to evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus with others. We find this image in a number of places in the New Testament. So, for example, after Paul and his companions have completed their first missionary journey in the book of Acts, they return to the city of Antioch, and we read in chapter 14 how they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth about his travel plans and he says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. And he writes to the Colossians in chapter 4 and says, Pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Again and again in Paul's life, there were occasions where God opened a door for the gospel to be proclaimed. And now the Lord Jesus says that he has opened up the door of opportunity for the church at Philadelphia. As we've seen, Philadelphia had always been a missionary city. It was designed to spread Greek culture, but Jesus wanted to use this church to spread the good news of Jesus. The city of Philadelphia sat on all the major trade routes. The Romans had built roads that connected the entire empire. The famous Pax Romana, or Roman peace, made it safe to travel. Greek was the common language of the day, so it was easy to communicate with a variety of different people. And the early believers had copies of the Old Testament scriptures in the Greek language. They had an open door of opportunity. And what was true for the church in Philadelphia is true for our own church and for our own classic congregation and for our own lives. Because remember, this is not simply Jesus' message to a church. His message is to us as individuals. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is your door of opportunity today? Where are there open doors for you to share your faith? Recently, I became aware of the fact that I do not share the gospel very often. I tend to console myself, but perhaps it's simply excusing myself, with the thought that my task as a pastor is to equip God's people for works of service, and so that while I may constantly rub shoulders with Christians and therefore don't have opportunities to share the gospel, that that is all right. But I realize that this time of COVID presents us with a fantastic opportunity 
I'm aware that people are asking questions about life and God. And I've known that I could do something, that I should do something, but I haven't quite known what to do. And then I realize that there are a group of people who are constantly and actively wanting to talk to me, almost on a daily basis. I'm speaking of those wonderful people who call you up out of the blue just when you're making supper or driving or in conversation with a friend and they want to sell you something. Normally, I'm quite short with such people and sometimes, I must confess, downright rude. I also have a wonderful facility on my phone so that after I've rudely hung up on them, I push a button which blocks them from ever calling me again. But I've removed the block from my phone. On Tuesday this week, I was sat in my office and I got a phone call from a young lady called Stephanie who asked whether I would take a brief market survey. Could I ask you a number of questions, sir? And I replied, yes, you can. As long as after you've asked me your questions, I can get to ask you some questions. To which she hesitantly agreed. After she'd asked me all sorts of questions about my car insurance and home insurance and whether I had a tracker, I'm hoping she wasn't a criminal, but after she'd asked all of these questions, she said, well, thank you very much. And I said, all right, well, now may I ask you a couple of questions? And she nervously said, yes. And I quickly said, I'm not wanting to ask you on a date or anything. But Stephanie, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he loves you enough to send his son Jesus into the world to die for you? And she sort of hesitantly said yes, which led to a brief conversation about what it would mean to have a relationship with God. I didn't do it perfectly. I was quite nervous. In fact, at one point I told her I was nervous. And she said, no, don't be. I think I needed that today. Stephanie is now the third person that I've spoken to in this way. The first two didn't go as well as my conversation with her. But I'm pretty convinced that given enough time and practice, I'll become better at sharing my faith at a time when people desperately need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me use another example here. We have the privilege of having Mike and Nola Taylor in our congregation. Mike is a retired Baptist pastor who served at the Bible Society for many years. Whenever I see Mike, he always has a new little booklet, perhaps a Gospel of John or a Christian tract, and he tells me about the people that he has given these to and the responses he's got. He's much braver than I am. He's doing this in person, not just over the phone. What is your door of opportunity today? God has placed you in a family, in a school, in a home. Or to use a slightly different biblical image, uh, remembering uh, what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 when he called him, he said to him, what is that in your hand? And Moses answered, a staff. And God used what was in Moses' hand to rescue his people out of Egypt. So what do you have in your hand? We see in Scripture that everyone has something. The Sunday school song reminds us, Shamgar had an ox goad, David had a sling, Samson had a jawbone, Rahab had some string, Dorcas had a needle, Moses had a rod, Mary had some ointment, but they all were used by God. What do you have in your hand? A calculator? A telephone? Some time? A dishcloth? I'd encourage all of us, let's begin simply with prayer. 
maybe praying particularly for just five people around us, friends, acquaintances, family members who are yet to be Christians. And then let us step out in faith through the open door of opportunity that God gives us. Now, if you are anything like me, when you hear things like this, you possibly think, this all sounds very exciting, but. And that, yes, but reaction existed in the church in Philadelphia all the way back in 95 AD. While there was this open door for the church at Philadelphia, there was also a number of obstacles too, which is our third heading then, obstacles. And we see three of them in these verses. Number one, there was the obstacle of weakness. Last week, we were introduced to the church at Sardis, which was big and noisy and flashy and seemed to be alive and with it. The church at Philadelphia was the exact opposite. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know that you have little strength. They seemed small and weak and unimpressive. They probably didn't have too many of the leading citizens of the city attending their services. Their membership was probably made up from the lower echelons of society. One thinks, for example, of Paul's description of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Perhaps we feel that we ourselves or our own congregation has little strength. We're few in number. We're fairly elderly. Maybe the energy and the enthusiasm and the drive that we once had may have gone. It's vital to see then that this is a church of which Jesus has nothing bad to say. No note of condemnation, no call to repentance, just an encouragement to look and to see what Jesus offers them. Because weakness is not a barrier. In fact, it is actually a prerequisite for effective work. Paul goes on in that same passage in 1 Corinthians to say, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In his second letter, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And Paul had personally experienced God's power in weakness with his famous thorn in the flesh, something that tormented him and that he wished could be taken from him. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In one of his sermons on this passage, Pastor Ellis Andre said, when it comes to effective Christian service, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are weak and know it, and there are those who are weak and have yet to discover it. Weakness is in fact no obstacle to the open door. Number two, as we have seen, there was the obstacle of persecution. 
In his commentary on this passage, Pastor Darrell Johnson points out, the church in Philadelphia faced strong and even fanatical opposition from the threatened religious establishment. And in the face of such opposition, it would have been tempting to develop what people call the huddle mentality. Let's just lay low for a while until the storm blows over. No huddling, says Jesus. Look, I have put before you an open door. We do not face outward persecution in South Africa, but it is becoming increasingly dangerous to proclaim biblical truth. Jesus' message to us is the same. No huddling. We need to use the opportunity while the door is still open. And number three, there was the obstacle of future trial. Although they have been through persecution, in verse 10, Jesus speaks about the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And we too are facing a time of trial. There is no question that we have been through an extremely difficult and challenging time during this pandemic, and that this continues to be a difficult time. And the temptation is for us to hunker down and be careful and look after ourselves and our families. I think it's a very natural response, maybe even a useful response. But I believe that that time is now over. I love the way Pastor John Stott puts it in his commentary on these verses. The Lord Jesus could already say to them in verse 8, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. But these negative stances were no substitute for positive evangelistic witness. Had the Philadelphians kept Christ's word, let them now begin to spread it. Had they refused to deny Christ's name, let them now actively proclaim it. Well, if we're feeling a little overwhelmed by these obstacles, the three obstacles are matched by four promises. Our fourth heading today, promise. Number one, Jesus promises, I will do the unexpected. Verse nine, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is a wonderful and unexpected promise. As the Christians in Philadelphia hold out the word of life, some of the very people who oppose them will come to faith in Jesus. Number two, Jesus promises, I will protect you. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. This could mean either I will keep you from undergoing the trial, or I will keep you as you go through the trial. The Greek text can have either meaning. On balance, though, given what we know from the rest of the book of Revelation, and indeed what we know from the rest of Scripture, it probably is the second meaning. God doesn't promise us that we will never go through the fire, but he most assuredly does promise us that he will be in the fire with us and will protect us from ultimate harm. Number three, Jesus promises, I will give you eternal security. Verse 12, 
Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Remember how every time there was an earth tremor in Philadelphia, the citizens would leave the city and head out into the open country. And how after the tremors had subsided, they would then return. In contrast to that coming and going, Jesus speaks about the permanence and the stability and the eternal nature of our home with God. Number four, Jesus promises, I will honour you. The second part of verse 12. The image is still of this pillar in the temple. And Jesus says, I will write on that person the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. In those days when a person had served the city well, he'd been a good magistrate or a good civil servant or a good priest, the citizens of that city would make a memorial for him. They would erect a pillar in one of the temples and inscribe that man's name on it. We are being built into a temple in which God lives through his Holy Spirit. And we are pillars in that temple with three names written on us. We bear God's name, the name of God's city, the fact that we belong to the new Jerusalem, and a special name that God alone knows. It speaks of honour and intimacy. The church in Philadelphia faced many obstacles. Left to their own devices, they would have huddled together and hunkered down. Instead, the Lord Jesus asks them to look up and to see. Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That open door stands before us today. Will you go through the door? Maybe you've never gone through the open door of salvation. Today is the day. Stand up and walk through it. Leave your sin at the foot of the cross where Jesus paid for it and walk towards him in the righteousness with which he clothes us. But having walked through that door of salvation for ourselves, we need to look for the opportunities that God has given us for others. As Pastor John Stott puts it, Christian believers who have received salvation as a free gift from God through Jesus Christ are deeply concerned about the material and spiritual welfare of their fellow human beings. Having gone through the door of salvation, they hurry out through the door of service to look for others, and in the words of Jesus, compel them to come in. May God grant us this week the opportunity to walk through the open doors that he has set before us. Amen.